Please pray with me. Oh God, take our minds and think through them. Take our lips and speak through them. Take our hands and work through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. For your love's sake. Amen. Well, now we finally come to the end of our sermon series on life hack tips from the patriarchs. We've explored the stories of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob to see what sort of tips for our present day living we can get by plumbing the depths of this ancient text of Genesis. And today, we come to yet one more iconic passage the passage of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord or with. God herself, uh, at the river Jabbok. Here, Jacob, after having spent the previous nearly two decades in Haran, is bringing his whole family, all of his possessions, uh, all the servants who work with him, back home to Palestine. As he approaches the river, he sends them all across the river so that he can spend one final night alone. And it's there that God meets him and wrestles with him, and according to the text, wrestles with him until daybreak. Now, I wrestled for six years in high school, from seventh grade to twelfth grade, and I was the captain of my wrestling team uh, my senior year. Wrestling, if you've ever done it or ever watched it, wrestling requires uh, quickness. Not so quick, but quicker than you might think. Uh, It requires strength. Uh, It requires good moves. I have to say, as a wrestler, there are a few things more satisfying than going against a wrestler who's bigger and stronger than you, but being able to beat him by uh, having better moves. Uh, It requires a certain mat sense, but to be a good wrestler requires something else, something crucial, probably the most important thing, and that was persistence. If you go to our wrestling room, the old wrestling room, outside outside the entrance to the room, there's this big poster we had up. And it had a listing of all our matches and an award that we gave out each week to different wrestlers. One was for the best performance. Uh, one was for most improved. Uh, but the one that I always loved seeing the most is the one for guts. There was a guts award that was given uh, each week. And there was an image on that poster. And the image uh, actually has a little bit of congregational history to it. We, we went on a school trip up, at, up to Salem, Mass. at one point going through the Salem Witch Museum, and there's this image, there's this, they have these like figures, large figures there, and there's this image of this one guy who was accused of being a witch, and they wanted him to confess and to name other witches, and so they had him lying on his back, and they're putting heavy stones on him uh, to get him to confess. Uh, and the, <laughs> the, again, it's one of these, you can hear the voice uh, going on in one of these sort of live, you know, fi- human-like figures, uh, and the voice creaks out, more weight, no, the stone puts on more weight. And so we had this image in the wrestling poster for the guts thing. There was this guy with stones on him saying, more weight. Because <laughs> the reality is in a wrestling match, uh, a team wrestling match, uh, you win based on points. And there are big, there's a big point differential between being pinned or, say, losing by points, uh, individual points that you get for moves. So there were situations where the entire team's match depended on a wrestler going out there knowing he would lose, but being told, just don't get pinned. You want to know something that's intimidating? (laughs) It's going out, putting your foot between that line on that mat, and being like, God, help me last six minutes. 
Because when you're on your back trying to fight off being pinned, uh, if you can envision this, you're on your back and someone is on top of you who's usually bigger and stronger than you, putting all of his weight on you, trying to get your shoulders down. The only thing between you and defeat are the neck muscles that you've got. And you literally are bridging off your neck the entire weight of a human being uh, for, significant, for as long as two minutes. Uh, and there you are. And again, this is like, you'd be like, you can imagine the team all cheering me like, you can do this. Just don't get pinned. Lose, that's fine. But just don't get pinned. It requires guts. It requires persistence. That was sort of a key element that our coach kept hammering into us. Now, Calvin Coolidge is uh, not a particularly remarkable president, although he was one of the few presidents who came from Massachusetts. Uh, Coolidge's uh, most famous distinction is being known as Silent Cal, a man of few words. And uh, there's a story that I like of Coolidge after he left being governor of Massachusetts, uh, his successor was stuck there. And back then, the governor of Massachusetts had uh, people who could go directly talk to the governor about different issues. Constituents could come like into office hours as the governor. And this, this successor to Coolidge was just spending all this time in office hours with one constituent after another. And he finally called up Coolidge and he's like, how'd you do it? How'd you deal with all of these people coming to you? And Coolidge's response was, well, you talk back. So in spite of his being a man of few words and being a rather unremarkable president, he does have one quotation that I love. One of my favorite quotations from any of the presidents. And the quotation goes like this. Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. The world is full of unsuccessful men of talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. This coming from a man of perhaps marginal talents who became president of the United States. Persistence. I remember when I graduated from college, uh, here you have, uh, and all, you know, talking to all my classmates, you know, people graduate from Harvard and they, they uh, have a tendency to think that they've got all the answers to the world. Um, sterling resumes, uh, great minds, like, oh, this is, this, this is my time. And then they get into uh, a standard, like, again, one of the, <laughs> the most common places for Harvard graduates to go at that in those days were high-powered consulting firms and investment banks. And you get into one of these consulting firms or investment banks, and you're all ready to be a contributor, and they're like, we don't want you to say anything other than just work. So your task was basically to sit in front of an Excel spreadsheet for 16 hours a day. And the work is not all that engaging, and actually they don't care that much about your mind, but they do want your butt in a chair working for 16 hours a day on an Excel spreadsheet. And it's kind of a big transition going from being engaged with these rock star professors every day and thinking about deep issues and writing papers to just uh, mastering the shortcuts of Excel, trying to figure out discounted cash flow analysis and things like that. And that's why when employers were looking for people uh, to choose for these jobs, one of the few characteristics they're looking for is someone who actually has the capacity to persist. When they're interviewing, like, who are the type of people who are going to work those hours and then come back the next day and work those hours again and again and again? I mean, think about it. How many of our jobs are less than exciting, 
less than riveting, less than all-consuming, and that when it comes down to it, your ability to persist, to stick with it, to keep going, makes a difference between success and failure. And I think about Jacob. I think about Jacob. I mean, a, a, a high school wrestling match is six minutes, and I think that's pretty brutal. I can't imagine wrestling the whole night long. What gave him the strength to persist? It's like three in the morning. He's exhausted. He goes back out on the mat, looking at his opponent. Uh, you can always tell when people are exhausted because they stand up a little bit taller, uh, not quite so energetic. Uh, what gives him the persistence, that, that, that deep something to keep going on? I was thinking about it this past week and trying to think about it. I was thinking, one, one thing that struck me is that for him, persistence was habit. It's just something that he had done again and again in his life. Here's a guy who uh, was born without great hunting abilities, not being particularly strong. In the ancient world, those things matter more than anything else. So he's born with a short end of the stick, but he's a bright guy, and he learns to persist. Yes, we might critique some of his moral choices as a young man, but he learns to persist. He leaves everything to go to a new land, think about it, leaving everything behind, and comes away from it successful by persisting. Again, partly by cheating his uh, father-in-law, but that's another story. Uh, I mean, he, he wants to marry Rachel. He spends 14 years persisting. Here he is at this wrestling match. This is something that he had done time and again, and he was used to what it meant to persist. When, the, when push came to shove, it came naturally to him. He didn't fold easily. I had the great pleasure of rowing uh, with uh, the most well-known uh, res- uh, rowing coach in American history, a guy named Harry Parker. Harry Parker, like Calvin Coolidge, was a man of very few words. Uh, there he was in the rowing launch behind you as your boat's going along, and he would just sit there and stare at you. It's intimidating, actually, to get a stare from Harry Parker. But what, what Harry would do is that he would put boats in competition for every practice. No matter how intense or how easy the practice was, boats were always in competition. So whether we were doing short sprint pieces, long intense pieces, or supposedly easy pieces, we were always rowing next to someone else. Why? Because it was a constant measure of how fast and how good you were doing. It forced you to try and persist even though you got tired. Another thing he would do is we'd have these race pieces, and he would always insist on calling out the last 20 strokes of the race piece. So let's say we're in the basin, the Charles River Basin. There are five boats across. Uh, it's seven in the morning. We're all going all out on a two-minute piece. And the coxswain is, like, calling us up as we're going. You're, you're down one seat to the other crew. Let's take a 10 to get... You're going back and forth. All of a sudden, the clock's going down. And he's like, okay, we just passed the 130 mark. You don't hear anything from the coach. You just passed the two-minute mark. It's supposed to be a two-minute piece. You still haven't heard anything from the coach. And then at some point, around 2.15 into a two-minute piece, he yells, last 20. And that's your sign to keep going. He would do this consistently because he wanted to make sure that regardless of how tired we were, he would push us that much harder in competition because he wanted to make sure that the last 500 meters of a race, the time when the race is determined or not, that we had been trained in the habit of persisting. And that, in fact, was one of his great lines. Again, he didn't say very many things, but one of the things he would say is in the midst of these hard pieces, he would yell out in his very distinctive voice with his bullhorn, be persistent. He didn't believe in yelling at his crews. When you're a man of few words, you don't have to yell. So habit, habit's a good thing. But what else? I'm, I'm I'm thinking back to this Jacob story. 
I mean, this is a guy who got his hip dislocated while wrestling and kept going. Now, I've never had a dislocated hip, but I'm thinking that's pretty painful. And I can't imagine wrestling with a dislocated hip. How did he do that? How did he persist through that pain? I think the more, my, my high school wrestling coach, one of the lines that he would give us, I thought this was a good line. He said, it's not pain that breaks someone, that causes someone to give up, to stop fighting. It's the anticipation of pain. It's not the pain that causes someone to give in, it's the anticipation of pain. You're fighting off your back and you look at the clock and you realize you have another minute to go and you don't think you can do it any longer and then you give up. How true is this uh, in different parts of our lives? If you're, you know, when we were a kid mowing the lawn, uh, you look at the lawn and you're like, this is a really big lawn. I don't think I can do this. But you're saying, well, I can do one strip. I can do another strip. I can do another strip. Maybe I can get, maybe I can get through it. Think about other times of pain. We have times of pain that aren't just physical. Think about emotional pain, loss, grief. You face grief and it can be completely overwhelming. How do you, how do you face the enormity of another day with that deep pit of loneliness haunting you? Well, you try and make it through that one day, that one morning, day after day. And you find a way to persist through the pain. It's not the pain that gets us and prevents us from persisting. It's the anticipation of pain. But there's something else going on here too. Jacob is someone who's deeply, deeply motivated. He has some fire in his belly, something in his gut that keeps him going. Jacob, again, uh, the, the background of this passage is it's easy to miss if you don't know the context. Because the next day when Jacob gets up and has to walk across the river Jabbok, guess who he's going to find on the other side? His brother Esau. The last time he saw Esau, Esau wanted to kill him for stealing the blessing from him. Here he was, he thought he wanted to, his homeland, returning to home, was his future, was his, was his destiny. But in order to meet that destiny, he had to face his brother the next day. This was his moment of reckoning. Yeah, he's got these kids, he's got this family, he's got these possessions, but he could see his brother, and his brother could try and kill him right there, and all lost in a moment. And so what he struggles for, as much as anything else, is a blessing from God. Is that blessing to give him courage to face the next day? Perhaps. Is the blessing a blessing that he hopes will keep him safe as he confronts his brother? Could be that too. But he is deeply motivated and driven by receiving a blessing from God. There's something that drives him. People who persist are people who are deeply motivated. One of my favorite examples from history is William Lloyd Garrison the father of the American abolition movement. And it always amazes me to see this. He started his magazine, The Liberator, in 1830. 
abolition was so unpopular in 1830 that in Boston, Massachusetts, the future home of abolition, in Boston, Massachusetts, William Lloyd Garrison had to fear for his life after giving speeches about the abolition of slavery. That's how unpopular abolition was in the 1830s in Boston. It wasn't until the 1840s that there started to be a groundswell of support for it. It wasn't until after the Mexican War that you had a significant population in the North who were in favor of it. It wasn't until the late 1850s that you actually had a majority of the people in the North in favor of it. And when the Civil War started, Lincoln couldn't say it was about slavery because there weren't enough people in favor of it until after the Battle of Antietam in 1862 that gave him the chance to, to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. Abolition was a 30-year-long fight. Think about that, 30 years. Who, what, what makes someone persist for 30 years by being hated by your neighbors, by being jeered at, by potentially having to risk your life, by being impoverished uh, the entire time, all driving him towards that one goal? William Lloyd Garrison was deeply motivated by the horrors of slavery and fighting for abolition. And that drove him onward. And again, he's the single most influential person in the early abolition movement in the United States. Being deeply motivated. When I look around at this church, I do pray that we... I hope I didn't knock my poor microphone off. Persistent here in the church. Churches are long-term endeavors not short-term endeavors. Churches can be really frustrating by how slowly they move, by how slow change happens. I mean, again, change in churches is glacial at pace. But the key is for us as a body of Christians is to be persistent through that. To, again, develop the habits of coming to meetings prepared, of being excited about the work of the church to taking it one step at a time towards our goals of how we can be a better group of Christians, more devoted to one another, closer to one another, and also a bigger influence in the society and community around us. We have to be driven by some deep motivation that what we're doing here actually matters in order for us to persist. And I pray also that we can find persistence in our own lives. Maybe some of you are at a place right now where you are feeling beaten down and you just want to give up in whatever it is that faces you. Look at the story of Jacob. He too had every reason to quit while he was wrestling with God by the river Jabbok. But he persisted. It's my prayer that at daybreak, each of you can walk up, each of you can wake up, and even though you might be limping from the various things that have happened to you in your life, you can still have something burning inside you that you can persist and you can walk towards that fateful interaction with Esau knowing that you have a blessing from God.